everybody, and welcome back to the Hard Times Strongman Podcast, where we are creating a better class of man. This week, bringing a different perspective in the prepared and outdoor community, someone from the UK that we thought we could bring on and share his vast experience, knowledge, and just a different perspective on this whole outdoor and prepared mindset, especially from coming from a culture where it's not really normalized and just purchasing a firearm is not the answer for a lot of these people. So joining us today is Mr. Richard Prado. Welcome, Richard. Thanks for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. Oh, I'll, 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 do you want me to introduce who I am? Yeah. None of your listeners will know who I yeah, am. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and actually, th- that's what I was going to say first, if we can just kind of get a very, you know, as as brief or detailed background as you want on who you are and what you're doing. Okay, so my name's Richard Prado. I live in uh, Wales, which is the bit on the left-hand edge of England. Um, so it's the bit that's not Scotland. It's a separate country, but we are part of the United Kingdom. Uh, and I have done everything in my life possible to avoid having a real job. Um, <laughs> and so far, so good. So I, in my current state, uh, I have a business that trains people in outdoor safety. Um, you could call it survival, I suppose, but the emphasis we put on it is making sure that you don't get into that survival situation in the first place. So it's teaching people good skills and drills on how to do their job in the outdoors, because that's who a lot of our clients are. Um, but also just individuals and um, sort of groups using it for leisure, um, how to develop a good skill set so you don't end up in the survival situation in, in the first place. Um, and in parallel to that, I do some other weird and wonderful things. I teach people about wild food, a lot of stuff around foraging. I consult for businesses that use wild plants in their very expensive products. Um, and occasionally I pretend to be a photographer as well. You have a vast amount of experience <laughs> coming into this outdoor game. It's not something I ever, I didn't sit down and go, right, I'm going to have a career in the outdoors. I just kind of bounced from thing to thing that looked fun but from my early 20s. And I started working in the mountains here in the UK um, as kind of a mountain guide. Because we like if you, a wilderness area here in the UK, or as close as we have, are the mountainous areas of North Wales, the Lake District, um, Scotland places like that that's where you go to if you want to walk for a day without seeing a road Um, and to take people out into those mountains you have there are qualifications there's a whole qualifications scheme for that so I started going through those qualifications and then hey there are there's you can do this work and you can do this work and picked up all sorts of like day gigs and then working for a week at a time for different places and then I started doing some work overseas leading trips overseas most mostly with the British clients uh, but doing things in Africa and doing stuff like Everest Base Camp and things like that and then from there I was just really really lucky to be standing in the right place at the right time to get on to other interesting work uh, to the point now where I've worked with the military I've worked with film and TV people consultancy there saved well not saved but stopped uh, pop stars from dying during <laughs> music videos they were filming in the mountains um yeah random stuff i was in a search and rescue team here for nine years and i train search and rescue teams now so yeah I, I, at some point my british sense is going to kick in and i'm going to have to stop talking about the stuff i've done because i feel really uncomfortable you know that <laughs> <laughs> no th- we can't yeah i like how you said you just wanted to 
kind of do things that you know you thought were interesting and it's not like you made a plan on okay i'm gonna be into this outdoor industry i've kind of bounced around because that's very opposite than what the normal north american culture is in this community people are like i need to start um i don't know military seems to be the baseline for a lot of people they're like oh i'm, mm-hmm. I'm a soldier and now i'm a you know subject matter expert in outdoor stuff when that's not the reality for a lot of those guys so i like how you have a lot of experience and you've just built it over a long career so far I think that's the thing that when you, you ask any person, like, where are you now? How do you get to where you are now? So a lot of people will be able to unroll that and say, well, I did this and before that I did this and that put me in a position to do this. They might give you the honest answer. They might give you the the, the wave tops rather than the wave troughs mm-hmm. of that story. But if you flipped it the other way around, if you went to that person at 21 years old and say, right, at 39, you've got to be at this point. How do you structure your life to get there? it's impossible to repeat that path it's you know every every single day you had a dozen decision points that led you down a slightly different route to get to where you are now and i don't know in the last five years particularly as i started to become more well known in a tiny tiny sphere i've had more people asking me hey how do i get your job how do i get to be able to do what you're doing now Mm And I think I disappoint people by saying, I have no idea, because I'm not entirely sure how I got here where I am now. But being in the position to like take those opportunities as they come along, being able to say yes to things when it's appropriate to say yes to everything, but also then moving to a point where you are secure enough to say yes to some things, but no to the wrong things as well. Yeah. You know, those like transitional things. It seems like there's a, an element of luck to that, too, mm. just being right place, right time. What's that thing about the more the the more you practice, the more you prepared, the more lucky you are? That you... Mm-hmm. Luck is a big part of that, but you also be, have to be able to recognize the opportunity when it comes along. And I can think back to the times where I didn't recognize those opportunities and I missed out on something, but I see those as part of that learning process, you know, that thing of... I don't have anything valuable to sell as an instructor that I learned by just doing it right the first time. Everything valuable that I sell is a mistake that I've learned from. And that not seeing an opportunity and sort of then saying, oh yeah, I was unlucky because I missed that. It was like, well, you could have seen it. You could have positioned yourself maybe to be in that right place. Um, those are, That's part of the, okay, yeah, well, I screwed that up, but yeah, I'm going to learn from that so make sure that I try not to repeat that mistake again. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, whenever I was looking up your company, um, Original Outdoors, because that's, again, what you're doing now, I guess, mm. mainly, right? Is like your, I want to say, like 70% of the time, or no? Is it little like 50 50 with all your other ventures? Um, it's about 60 70% of the time at the moment. So okay. Working in the outdoors in one way or the other, yeah. Yeah. And then. Um, what are you mainly doing with that specifically? Is it mostly clients that you're bringing out or more like consulting? Um, it used to be open courses. So okay. before COVID, it was public courses week after week, 52 weeks of the year. We had we were doing something somewhere, people working for us, taking clients out as well, as well as private training and consultancy. And then the lockdowns here in the UK and particularly in Wales for COVID really brought that to a screeching halt. So... I'm not going to do the COVID thing, but the in, we had we got to a point where you couldn't leave the county. You couldn't. It was leave like the county. it was like you, that here in Canada too. You couldn't leave your yeah. region. Yeah, yeah. Road 
like police yeah, roadblocks. Road check, yeah, checkpoints. yeah, and they were arresting yeah. people. Yeah, it was a thing here. Yeah. Which really puts the dampers on a business yeah. that involves <laughs> taking people around the country and bringing you to one place. Um, yeah. So when that opened up again and that sort of all calmed down, we were looking at that and going, do we want to go back to that? And we decided actually maybe there's a different way to do it. So we started doing more content creation. So oh, we've okay. got, I think, the podcast that you found us through, which is Modern Outdoor Survival. Yeah. Um, but we've got a few others that are in the pipeline or will probably be out by the time this comes out. Um, that reaches a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that we can do in-person training for some people when it's appropriate, when it's we've got a group of people who want to do that thing and do that thing as a very bespoke training or it's part of a wider training program that we only offer to the military, say, or to the police, search and rescue teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I don't do much general training with the public. The only thing I do is open public courses right now, or we offer right now, I think, are the foraging and wild food courses, which is a weird parallel because we meet very, very different clients there. We don't meet anyone who's really interested in survival preparedness, really, or at least they're a very small minority of it. Kind of the, the, the foraging courses tend to be very middle class, very soft, very gentle, mm-hmm. interesting things. But it's a subject I love talking about, and it's a subject I love working with people on. So that's the only one we really do as a, a public course now. But everything else now is pretty much consultancy training for clients who are professional end users. Um, yeah, yeah, which is just super cool to see how much it's evolved. And obviously, um, COVID wasn't like, I'm, I'm going to say like the benefit of a lot of businesses, but for people to survive that, like, you know, restriction, they had to change their, you know, their business plan, their model, their, you know, whatever mm-hmm. their end result was to adapt to the new end user. So yeah, we thought we thought we had a diverse business model because we did consultancy, we did in person training, we did these other things. And then it's like, yeah, they're all knackered by the fact that you can't travel to somewhere or people can't travel to you yeah i didn't see that as a single point of failure until it failed Mm -hmm. and and that's you know going back to that thing about learning from your mistakes when we plan ahead with the business now it has to be okay there has to be some income resilience that's not there for that, that doesn't rely on that single point of failure doesn't rely on that one aspect i mean can we still make money can we still run a business just by staying on the farm mm-hmm. and creating content here, doing some work here in some way. Um, and yeah, that's that's actually flipped my thinking a little bit about preparedness and resilience and those kind of things as well. About you can have a really grand plan for survival, for safety, for not too outwoke we we not get into that, but that kind of severe weather event, flood, fire, civil unrest, those local things. You can have a really intricate plan. You've got all the gear, you've got your thing, you've got this thing in the corner, you've got that thing in the corner. There'll be something you haven't seen that you haven't thought of, which that pin goes and everything falls apart. So what I try and teach people now and put a different emphasis on is being flexible, is having a whole toolkit of skills, having a whole toolkit of possibilities, but being ready to deal with that unpredictable thing. Because if your whole plan relies on being able to foresee every single thing and have a thing ready to deal with it. Something's going to come along from the side and hit you in the side of the head that you just weren't thinking of. Those businesses that have survived and that have 
that are still there now. Um, I think the like the outdoor space here is still really struggling with that um, because well, we seem to go through like ten year cycles with the businesses, and we went through this in the last recession, sort of the two thousand and nine, two thousand and eight thing, mm. where. A lot of businesses that existed before, they folded, and a lot of new people came into the space, new guides, new touring outfits, new trekking people, who, whatever the sport was. And then they've had their 10-year cycle, and now something else, this is the next one that's come along, and already this year I'm seeing a lot more providers, a lot more people coming along to, to move into that space and say, hey, yeah, we're doing the thing, we're doing the really interesting thing. And... I'm, you, you look at those people coming in and go, okay, so we start the clock now. In about 10 years, you're going to be where I was when you started. Mm-hmm. And it'll be really interesting to see how many of those same problems they're going to go through. Or are they going to have a whole other set of problems that, that is very specific to them? How much of the, uh, the new companies that are coming in, are they bringing in new ideas or is it just the same stuff as the previous 10 years? I would say cycle? social media is making a big difference now. It was a thing that without a website you were dead in 2010 if you didn't have a website if you were one of these places mm-hmm. where you had to send you know write a letter and they would send you their course timetable those places still existed in 2010 but they didn't last long now it's social media dominance you know it's not about your qualifications necessarily it's not about your professional reputation it's just that how many followers how many followers <laughs> The, yeah. uh, how many likes on that reel how many likes on that tiktok account so much so that people are bypassing any kind of qualification scheme because they realize it's not necessarily a legal requirement it's only an insurance requirement mm-hmm. so the bypassing going through the qualifications and becoming guides becoming instructors just through their social media with the like how far social media has become you can look like a rock star on instagram or youtube but have never done that job to a professional standard let alone taken any professional courses and now you're Mm. you're running a you know a shooting company for an example um but like you said you know 10 years ago it wasn't a thing people just wouldn't have even looked at you if they didn't know your resume so it's just interesting how it's blended into even anything outdoors um as well like guided it is and it's it's some because i do i don't do anything tactical mm-hmm. personally but a lot of those outdoor skills that i built up and that we sell to people now we sell into the tactical space yeah they're totally so applicable right. to the military law enforcement yeah yeah land navigation is land navigation whether you're shooting somebody at the end of that mm-hmm. bearing or not yeah um and for law enforcement tracking and search techniques are very very similar to sar tracking mm-hmm. and search techniques so we sell the same thing Mm-hmm. within that so i i overlap into that world at least in terms of what i see what i see from clients what i see from friends and something that you see every now and again is the really cool photo of a chess rig <laughs> with this thing and this thing and this thing and then you see you look at it and go yeah but all that stuff's brand new and <laughs> the only way you got that thing into that pouch was doing origami by folding <laughs> it in and in and in it's, which means you can't deploy it and put it back in the pouch again without going through the same process mm-hmm. so presumably in the middle of a firefight or whatever you're doing it's like hold on guys i'm just going to fold this thing yeah it won't fit in unless i fold it 17 times this way and wrap it around you've got the elastic band that was on it yeah yeah i'll put that on then <laughs> so it's stuff that works in photos mm-hmm. but doesn't work in real life and you see that a lot in the outdoors there's a whole thing with a bushcraft thing which is people buy a load of gear go into the woods for a day 
build a shelter destroying an ecosystem that took 30 years to develop take a whole set of photos and that's two months worth of content for them mm-hmm. yeah and they and then they just keep putting a photo on yeah we're sponsored by this knife company these boots this place this place this place all that stuff shiny all that stuff's brand new meanwhile there's a guy somewhere without who doesn't know social media exists who's sharpening his knife on a river stone <laughs> somewhere and using a head torch that he bought in 1994 that he just keeps putting new batteries in mm-hmm. he knows a universe more of content than the person with the photos mm-hmm. but and in, in this new world the person with the shiny photos is the one that that gets the kudos and gets the respect in a way and it's a strange thing the way we've changed the way we take in information and what we see as maybe not what we see the three of us but what we see as we as a, as a society see as valuable see as worthwhile yeah, I had this discussion with someone a couple of weeks yeah. ago, and they we were we came to the conclusion that people want to uh, appear like they're doing the thing, but they don't want to actually do the thing. So it's easy to like that photo that looks like sexy or like looks staged, but to actually yeah. go out with that guy, like you said, who has the, you know, his his headlamp, head torch is thirty years old, and he's just mm-hmm. he knows way more information. People don't want to do that with that guy because they're going to be uncomfortable, and it's just it's easier yeah. to follow the you know the mainstream social media platform then actually reach out to a guy and learn a skill i know and in a world where worth is calculated by followers and likes i can only assume that the best instructors in any thing in the world all wear yoga pants (laughs) just like six said it's it's kind of weird to like hear from the uk perspective that it even affected the outdoor industry as heavily because we see it in north america for like all the tactical gear stuff where Mm. every you know five ten years the phase changes different people but it's it's weird because whenever north americans i know for me whenever we think of like the uk or europe like I think of outdoor stuff in the sense of like these guided trips. I think of like these crazy adventures or going to all these different countries. And I'm like, it's crazy to hear how one world event, whether you believe it's fake or not, COVID put everything at a screeching halt. And now anyone who was doing this at a professional level, you've had to adapt your business model and figure out, okay, what can I do like Mm. long term now to keep this going? Yeah. I mean, not to make any emotional comparisons, but just in terms of, the before and after it's a it's a little bit like 9-11 yeah and the sort of tactical military space before 9-11 unless you were involved in very few conflicts if you're in the american armed forces canadians british who are most most of nato you had a few small smaller things kosovo maybe the gulf war Mm -hmm. maybe some stuff in the 80s but that was very very limited whereas now if you have been in the armed forces for longer than 10 years, you have seen, and you're in infantry or something like that, you have seen combat. Mm-hmm. You've seen combat in a sandy place. Yeah. Almost by default. So there is a seismic ch- shift happened within that world. The COVID thing, I think we're still working that out now, but everything from working at home and remote working and you know video calls like this one to how you do in-person businesses how you do in-person experiences most we've worked out now for the future most of our audience is on the other side of the atlantic yeah for what we're selling yeah and we've got business partners in the states now that we work with and we sell training via them um and what we've had to become aware of here has changed in those three years but Actually, when I look around, look at the outdoor space, particularly in things like hunting and stuff like that, you can see how much America particularly, but Canada to some degree has 
affected, maybe infected, that outdoor world. So we get more American brands here, more American recognition, particularly in sort of hunting firearms space. Um, I've got you know I've got the same rifles for hunting that my friend in Indiana has, and we talk about the same thing. We've both got Vortex scopes. We've both got these things, but it's 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 not just that. It's, there's a whole cultural thing that's affected it here so much so that I've got friends who. You can't bow hunt in the UK. It's illegal to hunt with a bow. Oh, I didn't know crossbow. that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a weird law. It was when the <laughs> laws changed in the 70s because crossbows started becoming cheap and popular and they just outlawed all bow hunting. What? In one fell swoop. That is yeah, so weird. Which is, I know. Yeah. But you can't bow hunt in the UK. Despite that, there are UK outdoor influencers who are sort of heart soft sponsored by Hoyt. Yeah. And they, they put posts saying, bow, you know, hashtag bow hunting, hashtag mm-hmm. this, hashtag that, because they are actually influencing the American market. Even because though they're they from influence. the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Because on the internet, everything's sort everything's of... Everything's like blended. Yeah. 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 Um, and we've got this sort of the... We've heard of the Uniparty. This is the Unination. You know, it's this this mm-hmm. English language sphere that we that is now our global market. In the military world, it was really cool in North America if you were rocking um, anything British. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm. like, like guys wanted a Bergen. Uh, guys wanted handwags. Guys wanted anything UK. But then, as like you said, that shift happened. Now, like, I've talked to UK soldiers, and they're all rocking North American because they think it's cool, right? Yeah. There's, like, that blend. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's crazy oh, yeah. that it's happened with the outdoor industry as well. Oh, yeah. Everyone, everyone wants Cry Multicam and american gear and team wendy helmets mm-hmm. and, um and e- even the terminology has shifted yeah with it so because of so much co-working between the u.s and the uk military a lot of special forces terminology is now the american terminology yeah because it just becomes the nato standard and then even in the outdoor yeah. industry too like um again i know like cave the bergen as an example right is like it's actually like mm-hmm. the, the british term but there's like a bag that is a Bergen, right? But even in Canada, people mm. were calling rucks in the army like your Bergen. It was just the term we mm. adopted. Yeah. But there are weird things I think that don't quite get over there. Like we have a lot of Scandinavian influence into the UK outdoors, which I'm jealous of because those guys are very like I, they're at a high level of professionalism from the Scandinavian yeah. countries. And it's very very different gear. So it's like if you if I was to recommend a bushcraft knife to somebody, I would be looking at something like a Castrum or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going for factory, not going to a maker, but you want to get an off-the-shelf, go and buy it from a store now, I would say and go, go get the Lars Valt Castrum knife, which is virtually un- unheard of in the States. But it is the perfect shape. It's the perfect size. It's perfect hand size for a lot of people. It serves everything, but it's almost unheard of in the States. So it's weird how there are some things that affect us that don't, that haven't made it across to to your side and your, to the outdoor culture there. I feel like the... American, particularly, that your culture is set entirely on transmit. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's not much in the way of receive. Yes. So you're just broadcasting this stuff out across the world. But because you make some really cool stuff, you have some really cool ideas, you make some, you have a lot of influence, and a lot of the culture now comes from between the eastern and the western seaboard. Mm-hmm. You, you've got, we take in a lot of that, but we do take in a lot of the stuff from the Scandinavian countries and like in farming gear because there's a whole world of outdoor of like farming mm-hmm. clothing now yeah because everyone has a again a social media brand um the new zealanders the kiwis they because their their climate is very very similar to the uk 
So if you go and if you know, we live in a rural area, we live on a small farm. All of my friends are farmers. If I go and see any of them, they've got some level of New Zealand brand on them. Oh. They wouldn't be wearing an American brand, apart maybe Carhartt, maybe, but that's about it. It's it's weird how you get these sort of tribal things around nationality and gear and nationality and influence on things. Um, the Eastern European stuff and the sort of the Baltic countries seem to be taking more and more. Um, I don't think the Ukraine war has uh, had an influence on that, but made more Americans seem to be getting aware of like brands like Helicon Tex. Mm, yeah. Who, and uh, what's the, the, the crazy Finnish guys who do like army surplus, but not uh, Varastaleka. Yes. Yeah. I'm familiar with them. Yeah. Cause they're one of the only, yeah. they're one of the only European um, mm-hmm. uh, like surplus or distributors that will actually ship to Canada. So I've, I've looked at them before. Yeah. Yeah. There's a thing with this that, like, it's a it is a skill to be able to look at a piece of equipment mm-hmm. on the shelf, wherever, or even online, and go, yeah, that's actually worth the money. That's all. Yeah, this thing will do the job that I need it to do. It's not the most expensive. It's a brand I've never heard of. It's any brand Chineseium from Amazon, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a it's a pump for inflating a mattress. It doesn't need to be able to smelt uranium. It just needs to do the thing. Yes, and be disposable. <laughs> um, that is a skill on its own, and that's something I try and get across across to clients. That's it's not just about the brand you've heard of. I mean, it's like because all all when somebody turns up with all the with Arcteryx and all the other names that you've heard of, you know, all the logos on the chest, on the pack, and wherever, mm-hmm. all that shows is that they too can use the internet and have a credit card. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's straight. That's that. That's yeah. Yeah, it's straight consumerism over actually skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I know for me, a lot of the questions that I usually get are what piece of gear should i buy i never get asked hey what skill should i learn or focus on and i think that's like a culture thing we need to like reverse that that should be the question people are asking is okay like i want to get into outdoor anything what skills should i learn versus every question i get is hey i want to get an outdoor stuff what ruck brand i'm like dude it doesn't matter that's not like the first question you should be asking me can you make a fire can you make a shelter can you procure water do you well, like what's your food plan when you're out there? These are the bigger questions than what ruck brand. And then again, it's, we're constantly harping on you know skills over gear. But I think it's the the media is a big issue. Yeah. The fact that anyone can look up anything, just like you said, Richard, and you can like oh see a cool photo from a guy that has ten thousand shares, but the guy just staged a photo in his backyard, not even in the mountain. So, and it's there's a weird subset of skills that has becomes the expectation that if you're doing anything remotely related to survival the moment that word creeps in there people go right when are we going to light the fire and and roast a rabbit mm-hmm. over the fire it's like yeah there's a farmhouse five miles away that way learn to navigate and walk yeah. five miles you'll be fine if you yeah. can spend eight hours here trying to make a bow drill using that special sharpened necklace thing that you've got and your shoelaces or walk five miles you'll be there in a couple of hours if you're going slowly go there use their phone you'll have a bath waiting for the ambulance to arrive you know (laughs) there's what's going to kill you first is the thing i bring up on courses and that's the thing you should solve what's going to kill me first okay what's going to kill me after that okay solve that what's going to kill me after that solve that and that's kind of your order of importance this whole thing about you need fire you need shelter you need water it's like not always not everywhere some places Mm -hmm. in a flood water's less of an issue yeah (laughs) safe drinking water maybe but just generally water on its own um shelter can mean all sorts of different things it has to be very environment specific 
and this thing of trying to find a global principle of survival well it really is what's going to kill you first solve that Mm -hmm. and that's not always an equipment solve that's often a skill solve or just a not being in that situation in the first place solve which is always very easy to say but it's like okay so you've been yeah. you've your plane crashed in here and you don't know where you are and you've, you've <laughs> only got this this and this with you so okay well how did i end up in this situation why was i with this crappy airline why was i not vaguely aware of the routes this airline was taking over you know i'm flying from this place to this place in south america okay well i'm past have we passed the mountains yet have we passed that big river yet you know these things you could have filled in a bit more of that gap on the knowledge before you got anywhere near the aircraft but it's just that mindset and thinking back which is as we said less sexy than taking a photo i i like earlier too how um when we were talking about like what you're currently doing and with um or whenever you guys were more consulting or running training and that's why i know whenever we first started talking i said i like how you're you defined survival is like you shouldn't get to that point because you're almost like you have messed up in your planning phase or something has gone terribly wrong. And I like how you said we're, we're focusing on like safety and how to prevent you from ever getting to that point. And I know from my experience, and I'm not sure what you guys were told um, six in like the U S military, but anytime we did any quote unquote survival stuff, they said survival is just your, you're suffering. You're not like you have something has drastically failed, but the term fieldcraft, which I, I use like synonymously with my like um, nomadic fieldcraft name, it's just fieldcraft is just living. That's you operating day to day in a whatever environment you're in. They, like you said, it's environment based. It could be different for different people. But if you're actually doing that survival thing, something has failed and you could probably plan to not get in that situation. Yeah. Like the definition of those terms is it's something I've tried to think about well I've had to think about more in the last few years because I'm communicating to a wider audience and any part of that communication is about having clear concise ideas and if you're 15 minutes into a podcast and you're still saying well you know kind of well maybe that your people have turned off so mm-hmm. my clear breakdown of these things is survival beyond just the general you're breathing in breathing out and you're not dying survival that all of us listening and we're listening and all of us are doing right now anything beyond that is about an emergency situation it's gone yep. from um i mean there's a thing in some military and some of the stuff we teach which is nops and eaps normal operation plans emergency action plans normal operation plan day to day this is what you're doing everything's going fine oh crap bad thing happened now you go to emergency action plan the survival training related to that a lot of that happens in the normal operations plan to stop the stop the emergency from occurring in the first place or at least is this a predictable event okay let's have a kit for it let's have a plan for it let's try and get as far down this road of planning for it as possible so that's survival if when people say oh i'm going out to the woods for a survival weekend it's like well you're going camping yeah going camping (laughs) uncomfortably yeah yeah yes it's it might be uncomfortable you might just be lying on a bed of leaves in your underwear but it's still camping (laughs) you're not surviving you're yeah yeah you're living it's like you don't say i'm going out for a car crash weekend (laughs) well maybe some some people do but depends on how much i've had a drink yeah i'm gonna drive awesome yeah headlong into this wall at 60 miles an hour and then i'm when the airbags go off and then i'm going to practice my survival skills <laughs> no one no one does that so there's That's nothing awesome there's nothing wrong with going camping there's nothing you can the best 
most prepared people I know who have good stuff in their house to live from for two weeks, four weeks, whatever, indefinitely. They're often good hikers, mm. campers, backpackers. If, yes. you've been, if you've lived out of a rucksack for an extended period of time, you're sorted. You you have almost all the skills mm. you need for a, a, a long-term disruption of services, whatever. So the camping side of things then, okay, well, that can and the, the general outdoor skills that's a huge world on its own and there's a lot of this you can spend a lifetime learning and still not get anywhere near every the, the, what one person knows if they're really focusing on that subject and if you include all sorts of travel mountain biking canoeing um what pack rafting all these other things that people do now there's a huge world out there of stuff to learn and you can i i kind of do that i kind of drift between I was really into mountain biking and I got my mountain bike instructor qualifications mm. and then I hit a tree doing 30 miles an hour and broke my back, which kind of oh, you know, put me off the idea for a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm going off to do other things. But I, you know, you, you, you can spend a lifetime learning about any one of those skills. So the outdoors world, if you include that as part of camping, mm-hmm. then that's, that's huge. That's, mm. that's an endless yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's bushcraft, which is weird. And it's taken me a while to... Because you see it used for lots of different things. For some people, it means, okay, you have to have a shelter made of moss and sticks. You need to have a beard. You need to be wearing at least 50% leather in canvas. (laughs) And you need to be doing something that looks like like an end-of-the-world situation somehow, but you've got a shiny axe. That's what it is for some people. But when you look at the origins of the term and where it came from it's sort of this parallel thing that grew up in different english-speaking countries so there's a sense of there's a set of skills which are called bushcraft in australia and new zealand because their mm-hmm. their back country is the bush yes and you've got mm-hmm. uh, richard graves who wrote the the 10 bushcraft books which was essentially a, a survival manual for the australian armed forces how to survive in queensland how to survive in the remote country the remote area to the north of the country where where you might be fighting the Japanese one day, maybe. <laughs> you know, how to def- how to defend your own country. And then you've got Moors and Moors Kahansky, the, 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 the godfather of Canadian bushcraft, mm-hmm. who had the other book, Bushcraft, <laughs> which is yeah. the one which has the illustrations that look disturbingly similar to the illustrations in The uh, Joy of Sex. If you ever put the two next to each other, um, they are basically they, the same they look illustration. The same book. <laughs> it's the same guy with the same beard. Um, somebody pointed this out to me. I don't know if it's appropriate for your audience, but yeah, you know, no. you scar the people for life with that one. But his stuff was very focused on the northern hemisphere, particularly Canada. So there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. in there about you know, embrace the birch tree; it will give you everything you need. Those kind of yeah. skills, and he developed stuff, and he, you know, the Moors super shelter. This idea of okay, we've got this plastic sheet, and that's acts basically as a greenhouse in the sun during the day and then you roll this foil blanket over it to keep it keep the heat in uh, at night and um these you know really weird and interesting techniques but not none of that would have worked in australia but there's two different yeah yeah they're like they're two different climates so again this term yeah. is it's used too broadly and even yeah. whenever i tried to look it up um, because I was getting a lot of people asking, well, what's the difference between bushcraft and fieldcraft? And like, we never used the term bushcraft in the Canadian military. It was no. like fieldcraft. So I tried to research it and everything I, that I found was it was just making things out of natural materials. And that could have been like, I'm like, I'm whittling a spoon cause I lost my spoon or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like you said, you're making the shelter out of natural materials or whatever. It, it's again, a very broad term. 
Yeah. So in that thing of trying to chase chase down a nice definition of it, because we're we're about to start a new podcast a, a show about bushcraft. Um, oh, nice. But the, t- the the what I've tried to bring it down to, and I'm still working on my definition, but it's <laughs> it's work or living in the outdoors for a purpose that has that involves an interdependency on that landscape so either yeah, it's you, that makes your, sense your ability to yeah. read the landscape mm-hmm. so la, 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 there's this term that myself and then another guy called tristan Gooley, we both claim we invented it um but i think we were both drinking at the same time so yeah um <laughs> i'm sure someone else came up with it but it's landscape literacy being able to read a landscape you can look at a set of hills and if it's if you understand the geology of that area you can go oh yeah we're more likely to find caves and underground networks at that end mm-hmm. that's where you'll find a water source because there's more green vegetation there you know whatever the thing is but you can read a landscape um somebody with a tactical mindset would look might look at that and go yeah these are routes to travel this is that this is that a sniper looks at a landscape and immediately starts building a range card in his head yeah you know these the you are literate in one or two different things for the landscape so bushcraft for me involves being able to read a landscape for that purpose so for feel which why i think it encompasses fieldcraft because for the military you're looking at it for one thing if you're from a sar team you're looking at it for something else you might be looking at mm-hmm splitting it into search areas okay where are we going to have the left the hard left hand edge of the search area mark that with flagging tape okay we're going to go to the end of this trail we're going to block that off as a barrier to travel whatever it might be um for the hunter it's something else for the camper it's something else but it involves having an interdependency with that landscape because it's quite possible to move through a forest move through a mountainous area and live entirely out of your rucksack and fundamentally there's no difference between you being camped on that little bluff overlooking the forest or a walmart car car park hey everybody this is six and seven with the hard time strongman podcast and we are coming to talk to you about our patreon and discord hey guys our patrons get early access to all of our episodes they get all of our exclusive pre and post shows all of our spicy takes all of our rabbit holes that we go on everything that we want to include in the episode but we can't because we need to stay on topic and soon enough we'll be offering digital downloads guides everything that we've been working on in the background will soon be available to our patrons so make sure to check it out and come hang out with us on discord speaking of the spicy stuff this is where we discuss most of it once you're there you'll get access to all of our in-depth discussions including stuff like homesteading fieldcraft medical camping communications shooting you like ars come talk to us about it you like four by four vehicles and prepping come talk to us about it you like tannerite thermite napalm come talk to us about all of the campfire talks that would get us kicked off of other platforms it's right there in our discord come join our community we're active on discord every day we're interacting with members constantly we have guys from every walks of life coming to contribute their expertise to all of these various fields and subjects that we've been talking about come join the watch discord come join the discord join our community build up that better class of man now back to the episode yeah (laughs) the the stuff in your rucksack is the same is the same yeah you're you're on a sleeping pad you're on a tent yeah you've got your head torch you've got your water you've got your stove the landscape is just the pretty thing you're looking at whereas yes 
if you've had to you're putting a tarp up but you've you're using these branches to block off that end of the tarp to create a windbreak you're putting a fire here but you're orienting your tarp because the wind's blowing in this direction to take the smoke in that way so it's not blowing straight into your tarp or that weird thing where you put your tarp of wind of it and it creates an area of dead air that sucks yeah. the smoke under your tarp that's bushcraft that's that knowledge that understanding of the landscape that if i do this the landscape will do this to me if i do this the landscape will do this to me and if i do this to the landscape in 10 years it will look like this if you cut all the trees down you're not going to have a forest to hang your hammock in mm-hmm. so that's what i that's what i'm trying to get around to in so the, the some of the newer stuff we're teaching is okay can we bring it back around to maybe what the people who these terms originated with what they were doing and make it applicable to a much wider audience and as you can probably tell i've got a lot of interest in that subject at the moment it's that that bit in between survival and camping and outdoor experience and And trying to blend the two essentially it is but i think it has to involve doing a job in doing Mm -hmm. doing a you have to have a, a purpose for being there if your whole thing is going out just to build the shelter and you're enjoying building the shelter and taking the photo of the shelter and then leaving again that's like going to disneyland and being really excited about the hotel room that's true <laughs> that's super that's super accurate whenever you break it down like that as an analogy yeah. you're right because you're not looking at like the landscape you're not, not looking at the bigger picture yeah or even if you're going I'm, I'm taking a tarp and a sleeping bag and this mat because i'm also hunting and i've got to backpack out with 45 50 kilos of meat Mm-hmm. So I don't want to take a two kilo tent and this and this and this. I want to have a super light kit set up, which means I have to pick a good site for my bivy. Mm-hmm. I have to do things in this way, light a fire because I can't take a stove because I'm going super lightweight. That would be bushcraft, even though you're using some modern kit. It's because you're doing you're there for a purpose. And I think finding purpose in what you're doing in the outdoors as well will change your mindset. Even if that purpose is I'm going to go here and not look at a screen. Yeah, and I th- I think a lot of people just don't know their purpose. They don't know why they're going out. They don't know what they're preparing for. They don't know what they need to focus yeah. on, essentially. Yeah. No, that's super interesting, and I like I really like your definition of what bushcraft is. Because, yeah, I've tried to research it a lot as well, and it's very broad of a subject. It's There's so many origins in theory. There's so many people who claim it was their own. Mm-hmm. That does sound like it's the very definition of just balancing the primitive and the modern skills that we have. In your landscape, again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like based yeah. on your environment. Yeah. Yeah, because there's no... If you go for the so the bow drill firelighting method, if your thing is... You want to learn that as a skill, and it's a good skill to learn, to learn the fundamentals of it, learn what you need to do every time, what you don't... What won't work. But then I see people backpacking into the into the forest carrying a bow drill set on the side of their osprey rucksack. <laughs> i've never seen that that's awesome why would you want to punish yourself <laughs> yeah. that's Ooh. awesome because they want to practice that skill yeah right oh god yeah. and i've done a few things with you know journalists and I that's did one crazy with the bbc i've never seen that <laughs> yeah well not that long ago i did a thing with a bbc <laughs> journalist and i think i disappointed him slightly by we're talking about you know fire lighting and things and i think he wanted me to say oh yeah and this is when you use the bow drill because the thing was what <laughs> yeah. if you you lose your lighter i'll go well i'll go and get my other lighter yeah, what if you lose that three. lighter uh, i'll, well, I'll go, go and get the other one, one. 
yeah, yeah. they cost they cost like 50p you know they're not, they're not expensive <laughs> you can have them everywhere they last forever um, yeah i've got this ferro rod i've got this other one i've got this tiny one on my pen knife you know you can have these things all over your kit mm-hmm. and it's like well what if you lost all of those and it's like well i'm going to reconsider my life choices because yes something's going wrong home. <laughs> yeah yeah. yes yeah yeah like something has happened like just like what you said when the reality of what the survival is it's the emergency it's something poorly mm-hmm. has happened and yeah, it's I, I don't I don't know when it became this big sexy thing where survival training, right? Survival training, air coding is what everyone wants to do, but they don't even know the basic fundamentals of like you said, camping, even being outside and where to select your campsite. A lot of people don't know how to do that. Yeah. It's I think the military. I think it's the military is to blame for everything. As a complete civilian, I can say that. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. But honestly. It, yeah. It's, it's like air crew survival stuff. You are ejecting out of your 21st century fighter jet and suddenly dumped into the stone age apart from whatever was strapped to your thigh and underneath the seat mm-hmm. when you ejected yeah that's a situation where you couldn't have done much more to prepare for the event you had the kits you you ejected safely martin baker company made sure you got out of the aircraft alive and parachuted down into the forest but and you now, somehow what, didn't die jumping from your parachute either. Yeah, yeah like, you're, like, you're two <laughs> yeah. inches shorter now from the from the ejection. Um, <laughs> but that then became, okay, we're going to talk to a survival expert. This guy's been teaching SEER for 20 years over here. It's like, mm-hmm. Yeah, but he's been teaching survival skills to a very unique set of people for a very unique set of circumstances who are... It's, it's something that's quite likely, that's quite possible that's going to happen to them, but... It's not how the majority of survival situations take place. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's the eighty percent solution for like a hundred percent of the people. But like you said, it's just glorified and oh, I need to do this because if I lose everything from my rucksack, I can make a bow drill now. Is this because again, like just referring to you being from the United Kingdom and um, like we were saying pre-COVID everyone like outdoors act outdoor activities like less survival less tactical it is very common there but are you seeing the blend now where people do want these more um primitive survival skills or even modern survival skills or they just want survival as a as like a skill set now oh uh, yeah absolutely um there's a guy who is partially to blame for all this going back sort of 25 years and that's a guy called ray mears I know, who, I know who that is. Yeah, I don't know him personally, yeah. but I know who you're talking about. <laughs> so, Ray Mears, uh, civilian, um, but he, he, you know, he, he had a, still has a long career teaching people um, from all walks of life, and he was the one who really popularized the term bushcraft in the UK. Um, he had prime time BBC TV shows called Bushcraft and Ray Mears World of Survival and things like that. So, in the late '90s and early 2000s he was doing so he had a whole one hour episode where he made a birch bark canoe by the side of a river in canada <laughs> and that was and just like you know the it was slow tv but it was just showing making it piece by piece and then paddling and talking a little bit about the history of the birch canoe and things like that but stuff that would never be on tv nowadays um there's a whole generation of people who grew up with that and i'm slightly i think i, I was watching because i'm 39 now so i was that was formative for me, but I think it really started with a guy called Les Hiddens, the Bush Tucker man in Australia, who was kind of the Australian equivalent. He had primetime shows in Australia going through North, going through Queensland and places like that, find, you know, saying, oh yeah, you can eat this and it tastes like this and you can do this mm-hmm. and telling interesting stories. So 
there used to be TV was the culture for it and that was the cultural touch point for it. And then books and, you know, there were magazines like Combat and Survival and things like that, but they were f very much focused on large knives and stories about, all, you know, the sort of places that used to advertise adventure adventure careers in the classified at the back, which is basically going off to be a contractor. That's all it was. Or private security, yeah. But it was like you know, you can go and be an adventure career working for this, <laughs> working for this oil company somewhere. Um, so that was kind of all that was there, alongside the hiking, mountaineering, mountain biking world, which was more legitimate. You know, there were two or three magazines that were all de devoted to mountain hiking, and then there was a couple more devoted to rock climbing and mountaineering has a long history in the uk um and sort of in the wider empire and then the commonwealth a lot of the the world famous mountaineers came from those british influenced countries yeah. um so that was where a lot of the outdoors stuff lay and then in the early 2000s it drift the bushcraft thing kicked in a little bit more and along with the internet because it then became possible to share more information about these things it used to be there were three or four places in the uk these bushcraft schools survival schools where you could go and you you would learn these esoteric things like how to use a bow drill like how to make a shelter entirely from natural materials and then the internet kicked in and we could start learning from americans and canadians and i remember my first hammock was a hennessy hammock oh, yeah. and i was on a canadian outdoors forum Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s learning how to use it and like how to modify it so you put the zip on the side otherwise because the, the getting in from underneath is stupid um <laughs> and, I, and then i used that overseas on what those work trips you know leading groups overseas it was you know, hammock was part of the kit list and i just took my hennessy hammock so it was you started getting these all the cultural influences into it and then in the 2010s when social media really kicked in that's when everything changed and now you have the biggest you, you went through a period in the 20 in the 2000s where the biggest influences in the outdoor world was were, were were people who had been instructors at these bushcraft schools you know mm -hmm. that and then they set up their own schools and saying oh yeah this person was course director at so and so bushcraft school or whatever or they came from the military and they they built that and they you know they worked at the seer school in the UK they did this or they did this the, and I think you guys have got the same sort of thing over there but they were using that cachet as a build up to it in the 2010s the people who were turning into their into their 20s in 2010 onwards they were born like in the 1990s yeah. so they didn't know who Ray Mears was yeah. he would maybe you see it on a rerun on TV or you see a YouTube channel now but their influences were the internet and other social and forums and then social media and other things so where what happened with that was it shifted over to wilderness culture and that's what people wanted to do so in the 20 2000s people were interested in mountaineering going into the mountains of the uk the coast in the 2010s onwards it was all about finding wilderness in the uk you wanted to go into a forest and cut down trees and build a shelter and fish and hunt with a rifle and do all these things which for the vast majority of people in the uk is very very difficult because we have very we don't have much land mass yeah we have a dense population population is about 
slightly less than a third of the uh, U.S. population in a landmass that's about, I think we're about the same size as Arizona. Yeah, you guys have a lot. <laughs> you guys have a lot of people with not a lot of like. Um, what do you guys call it there? Is it crown land like Canada? Like that's what you call public land, Richard? What so do you we, guys call it? Like just free land? What would that be there? We don't have we don't have a direct parallel. So every every inch is owned by something. Someone, oh, so there's somebody. always someone who owns something. There, there's nothing yeah, that's so, actually free. Some of it's owned by the state, but actually the laws that allow access are universal. Okay. Across whether it's a private landowner, whether it's a, co a corporation, whether it's a state-owned body. Um, so we have, there's two types of access. You have public rights of way. So these are trails. These are, it's under the, it's under the Highways Act. It's the same thing that makes, a, I can drive down the road over there. Mm. There are footpaths. So there are trails that you can, you can zigzag back and forth across the country. There are thousands of miles of footpaths that go through farmers' fields, through people's gardens, through forests, along riverbanks. And if you have one of these public rights of way that cuts diagonally through your garden, you can't block it. You can't stop anyone from using it. You can't, That's you've crazy. got to have a gate either end. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, in a weird way, we have more access rights in some cases than others. You There's not anywhere in England or Wales that you can't really find somewhere to walk off, a, off tarmac within a mile radius of any one point. There's one of these trails. And then you have the Countryside Right of Way Act in England and Wales, which is, it takes that right of foot access and expands it to a an area. So there's sort of a polygon drawn on a map anywhere within that area. You can walk off trail, you will not be trespassing, but you can't do anything other really than walk and take a photo and sit and have a picnic. Okay. You can't mountain. You can't mountain bike on that land under that access. You can't camp on that land. You can't hunt on that land. You can't light a fire on that land, which knocks out about two thirds of outdoor activities for people on yeah. social people. media. Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean those things don't go on. It just means that it's kind of under the radar. And where we are in North Wales, it's a fairly low density population. I mean, I can walk outside of my back door now, and I, I'll see lights on the hills, but I think I'm probably two miles from the nearest streetlight. It's okay, and and I'm in a relatively busy area. If I go to my friend's house, it's a 25 minute drive down a, a non tarmac road, and if you walk outside of his house and th there's no power on, you'll think you're dead. It's just black everywhere. There's no lighting at all. Um, so we do have remote places and remote places to go to, and there's. When I was in a search and rescue team here, we occasionally came across, how shall I word this, interesting evidence of fairly high-level organized crime involving narcotics and the <laughs> handover of money for them in very <laughs> remote, remote places. Um, and, you know, people find, if people want to find a middle-of-the-nowhere middle place... You can still find to it, do you just have to look oh, yeah, for it. That's, yeah, yeah, and... For the hunting thing, it's all about... I mean, access to firearms is possible um, for either hunting or target purposes. Um, and if you want firearms for hunting, then uh, you need to have... Apart from shotguns, you can own without any other good reason, as long as you're not the equivalent of a felon. If you're... And you, there are rules about storage and where you can use them and that kind of thing, but for rifles, for firearms, as they're classed, separate to shotguns, you need to have a good reason for owning them. Hunting is a good reason, but you need to have permission to hunt on 
certain acreages of land. So I can hunt. There's about 2,000 acres of land I have access to to hunt on That's in the lot. local area. It's a lot. It's a lot, and it's a lot by UK standards. I've got a lot of friends who are farmers, and I make sure they're my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but that not being able to go through all those things because i live in a fairly remote place easy access to the mountains easy access to the coast easy access to forests i do lots of interesting work in the outdoors i have i'm fortunate enough to have places to hunt to be able to use firearms safely and responsibly and all of that that's not the story for most of people yeah i was i was just gonna say you're not like most average uk outdoorsmen regardless of what they think they're doing they are not richard Prudhoe. they don't have access to this they don't have the means so it's very regulated for you guys for everything and i'm yeah and i i'm grateful for that fortune but like like we were saying earlier you, you put yourself in the position of favor sometimes that you know, I've, I've steered my life, if anything, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. That's because those things are important to me. But if you're 21, you're growing up in the centre of London, you haven't got that access. Yeah. So you haven't got anywhere to go and do these things. And even if you wanted, you could drive to a national park, but there's no equivalent of crown land or, um, or public, public land. lands yeah. where you can it. go and build a shelter and light fires and do those kind of things. You can go... You can't even camp in the mountains legally, technically. Um, there was one place in England and Wales where it was sort of legally permitted and there's actually just that has just been overturned or really it's that they've, they've redefined the law. Um, so there's nowhere in England and Wales that you can just turn up in the middle of the night and legally camp without the permission of the landowner. Scotland is different. So in Scotland, that is equivalent of our public lands they have oh because it's not the, regulated by like the government there there's there was something called the land reform act i think 2004 and that almost did away with the idea of trespass so as long as you're not in somebody's garden or on a railway or impinging on somebody's privacy you can camp you can light a fire you can build a shelter hmm. and do all of these things so and it is legally enshrined the only thing you can't do is hunt really those laws didn't change but you could walk for three weeks across Scotland, lighting fires every night, building shelters, sleeping on mountaintops, drinking from streams, and nobody could do anything about it legally. So we do have those places, but there aren't many forests up there. A lot of it's open mountain land. We, our yeah. mountains aren't big. They go to I mean, the biggest in the highest in Wales, and that's higher than anywhere in England, is 1,085 meters above sea level. Which isn't no, high. It's not that but, high for a mountain, yeah. But for the UK, no, it's, bit, it's it's high, yeah. yeah. And sea levels like twenty miles away. Yeah. So so, the, you, so you in perspective, it is. Yeah, in perspective, it is yeah. pretty high for the location. Yeah. Yeah. A, 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 to use imperial, a three thousand foot, four thousand foot ascent mountain day is mm-hmm. quite regular. You know, that's that's something that that's that's normally done in scotland they're a little bit higher the i think it's 1344 or something is the highest which is ben nevis but still not that high but because they're all coastal mountains we're on the western edge of europe i mean when you look at our latitude as well we're level with newfoundland the bottom edge of alaska we are high you are high um um we get a lot of wet of wet windy weather so the outdoor skills that people you, it's quite possible to have a career as i have or even just you know as lots of friends have who don't work in this world but they do this stuff all the time 
becoming a very, very skilled outdoorsman for the situation and the climate we have here. So, so to answer your question, which seems like <laughs> a long time ago in my, my, my <laughs> rant here, that influence on the outdoors here, people, it, there used to be a different outdoor culture in the UK because it was built around what we have, mm-hmm. which has taken 10,000 years of civilization here to build. And that you know the reason we don't have any any trees on our mountains is because we cut them all down and then we put sheep on there and grazing animals and there aren't any trees anymore. So that's why our tree our mountains are virtually treeless and a lot of Scotland is treeless for those reasons. But that's happened over thousands of years. People seem to now want to be able to get that north woods experience here in the UK, and they seem almost ang- angry, disappointed aggressive that it's not there that they can't replicate it because i've seen this guy on youtube doing this mm-hmm. and i can't do it in surrey in you know in one of the counties yeah. outside london it's like well there's a lot of other things you can do but that's not a, wasn't our outdoor culture but weirdly it is now and it's we've hit this strange point where we have a lot of influences from the other side of the atlantic or even from scandinavia and places like that but people can't replicate that here so they get disillusioned or they really focus in on the one bit of thing they can do so they find a bit of scrappy woodland somewhere half an acre of woodland and they go there and camp every weekend and make a youtube video about it and make a youtube and you'll see this a lot here with uk outdoor channels everything's two night camping in the storm in the woods in a thing it's like Dude, that used to be called just camping. Yeah. <laughs> that was my childhood. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if people are making, are getting those hundreds of thousands of views and making the money from it, then great, more, you know, more power to you. But it's as I get older, I try and think about things more in cultural terms and like, what are we? What's the legacy? What are we leaving on for the next people? What What will I teach my children? What What would they learn? What would they then learn to and carry on with? I don't know where the outdoor culture in the UK is going now because it seems to be either entirely focus on social media reward or pretending we're somewhere else yeah um it's just it's just interesting how even though your your environment is not what people want it to be um you're still fostering a culture that is very much proficient in the outdoors because from the military side i know six and seven i've talked about numerous militaries numerous times but every British soldier that I've ever met, soldier, um, like Marine, like Commando, whatever, they like rocked being outside. Mm. These guys were extremely proficient at being outdoors for coming from a country where, like you said, there's not a lot of bush. The mountains aren't yeah. as high as like, you know, the Rockies in Canada or the United States. Yet these guys still had a very basic or a very proficient understanding of a very basic skill, which is just living and breathing and operating outside. Being wet and cold for two weeks consistently when nothing will dry and there's always <laughs> wind coming at you from one angle or another and you can never seem to get out of it, that will develop a skill set. Yes. And Or you'll die. Or you'll yeah. die, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the military training areas here, because a lot of these are on the open mountainside or open moorland and like, grassy mountains and they're not pleasant places. I've, I've, I've worked on them as a contractor, as, a, as an external trainer quite a few times. They're not comfortable places to be, and they are bleak. 
you can stand in the middle of somewhere and just go right there's no infrastructure here apart from some roads and some buildings made in the 1950s over there that have no glass or a roof left on them and i could walk 15 miles in that direction on a straight bearing and i am going to cross at least 20 streams four bogs and and it will still look the same when i get there you know that kind i think that has an effect and we also have the opportunity well our military has the opportunity to train in neighboring countries so going across to scandinavia and norway norway has a big one for you guys yeah yeah um but scotland scotland the scottish mountains they are one of my favorite favorite places on earth and there are a lot of incidents there every year with deaths hikers climbers people just go missing people go missing and just never and never seen again um because they are that open mountainside no forests there's a road in the bottom of most valleys but it's just a road there's there's two strips of tarmac and that's it there's cars going through it at some times but a lot of people have died within sight of those roads and i think there's there's something about that being constantly cold constantly wet and having to develop the personal skills and the the personal admin skills Mm -hmm. to deal with that um I I like Arctic travel. I like going to very, very cold places. I haven't done for a few years, but I used to do more of that. Because in a way, dry cold, that Arctic experience, that's easy. Make sure everything's zipped up. Make sure your layers are sorted out. Don't fall in the crevasse. Don't fall in the sea. Everything else after that is just boredom Mm -hmm. and stark beauty. But if you add moisture into that, if you add humidity into that, then it makes everything harder because you'll just stand there and no matter what you're wearing, you'll eventually develop hypothermia within a couple of hours just because the damp gets into you. It gets underneath all of your layers, everything else. You're constantly sweating and then delayering and adding this and delayering and adding that. And there is a very, I think to do anything in the outdoors here year round, you develop a very good outdoor skill set compared to when I speak to friends in, I don't know, Southern California or somewhere like that where there are other things that might kill you yeah you know you can walk you might accidentally walk into a grow operation somewhere but, <laughs> <laughs> and there's wild animals yeah. and there's you know there's all these other things mm-hmm. um but the climate itself isn't likely to kill you whereas here it's like there's a slow insidious thing there was a very famous internet th- thread a long time ago which was you somewhere out there in the world there is a snail slowly making its way towards you when it reaches you it kills you what are you going to do to stop to stop that happening and there's all these all these theories it was like the helicopter on a turntable plane mm-hmm. on a treadmill type thing yeah but i think about that like the the damp and that's just that creeping insidious dampness to the british isles and to this kind of latitude and to places like new zealand and, pla- and places like that the time you spend in that environment if you stop moving, if you haven't got a fire, if you haven't got the right kit, if you're not managing it in the right way, it's creeping towards you all the time. And it's just going to it's going to make everything soggy, everything damp. It means that everything has to be in dry bags, but you can't hang stuff up too dry. You can't just leave it on a line for an yeah. hour and oh yeah, it's dry again. Yeah. If your sleeping bag is made of down and it's starting to get water into those feathers into the pile, then you can't just leave it on your tent for a morning for an hour in the morning to get rid of your overnight sweat juice <laughs> you can because well the air is damper than it was in the tent and it or it's raining now so there's that 
it's the damp, really. That, and that's the thing that has conquered invaders in the British Isles for centuries. Yeah, like l- like no one, unless you're like a local to the Isles, you can't outlast or you know outperform that environment. And it was just interesting to see, um, yeah, my experience with like the UK forces that these guys would come to wherever we were training and they could outperform anybody. And they would always joke and say, "Oh, it's like it's shittier weather in Scotland or it's weather yeah. in Wales." They're like, "It's way worse yeah. where we're from. This is not that bad." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's there's that culture as well of not complaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you you complain, but in a very non-specific way. You complain, but you still do the thing. Yeah, exactly, and it's yeah. it, it is one hundred percent a culture difference because us as like six and I as the North Americans, it's it's very different within our oh, militaries. Yeah. People oh like God. to gripe, and people people think it's harder than it is, and then you see the British guys and they're laughing because they're like, "Oh, there's sun today," even if it's like raining <laughs> wherever yeah. you are. Hey guys, this is six and seven with the Hard Time Strongman podcast. Wanted to take a second to do a mental health check in. And to tell you all about the 988 Crisis Lifeline. So, the 988 Lifeline is a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress 24 hours a day, 7 days a week in the United States. You can reach the Lifeline at 988lifeline.org or you can call or text 988 to get help to get someone real on the phone. Every struggle is different. Every struggle is hard. But you are not alone in whatever you're going through. As someone who has used the 988 crisis line, I fully recommend that if you're feeling any of those feelings of depression, suicide, hopelessness, get in touch with them immediately. They will help you. They will listen to you. Once again, guys, you can reach the Lifeline at 988lifeline.org or you can call or text them at 988. As always, guys, stay in the fight. Stay in the fight. Um, I think that this is why tea is so important as well. Oh, for you guys to brew up? Yeah, you're okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like the touchstone that's through, there through everything. It's like if, as long as you're no more than five minutes away from a cup of tea. Then it's at fine. any one time yeah, yeah then, then your fine. outdoor skills are fine yeah you're nailed yeah <laughs> so many things make so much sense now that's so funny <laughs> yeah as long as you can brew up it's like you're fine mm. it's a thing with because I'm, I'm a civilian I've worked, I've worked with the military a few times but it's not it's not it's been part of my life but it's not a defining factor in my life but I like because we don't have full-time employees, but we have instructors that come along as freelancers for extended periods. Mm-hmm. I like employing from the military. Because, not because, hoorah, military. It's because, no, no, because if you if you were successful in that environment to a point, and particularly for, from certain trades, but if you were success, successful in that environment, you had a certain way of thinking about things, mm-hmm. a certain way of problem solving. And for an employer or anyone running a business that is important because a level of predictability in your people is 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 important for me and i think it's, you know, it's, it's one of those skills having a really unpredictable set of guys oh i've no idea what they're gonna do next yeah. well that's <laughs> that's not, that's good not reassuring yeah um whereas knowing okay well this is probably the baseline of expectation of skill problem solving the way they process information the way they will listen i mean they might think you're a complete ass when you're giving the briefings the instructions or whatever 
but they'll probably be quiet and nod along and go along with you and let you get to the end of your completely stupid briefing. Mm-hmm. They might come to you afterwards. They might talk amongst themselves. They might have different ideas. They might ignore it completely and do the better thing anyway. <laughs> but it's it was a level of comfort I found when working with people. And there is, I think that had an influence on me as I was developing skills because a lot of the guys I learned from were ex-military, mm-hmm. which means that being you know, late 30s, working in the outdoors, wearing a lot of tan clothing, beard, slightly vague about what I do for a thing for a living I do have to explicitly say I am a civilian I am a civilian I've never been in the armed forces never been in the armed forces because then yeah, I will say it, things like yeah because at first glance they, they can't tell like they're not really yeah. sure yeah and I'll say things like Bergen chin strapped you know, <laughs> I'll start saying I'll using terms that comes from the British military because yeah. they're in my head from when I was 21 yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so I don't know but how about for you guys has how, how much has that military experience and that mindset affected what you do i suppose for the outdoors would be my you know initial yeah, point to ask questions yeah. but how much do you reflect back on that and how much do you think that has stayed with you and how much comes from parallel learning to that and onward learning since the military well at least for me um best majority of it is just the discipline like you go out and you're outside we we had the saying embrace the suck so no matter how bad it is just keep going so that's just that's pretty much just been my mentality approaching a lot of things in life it's like no matter how bad it is you know suck it up just keep going they're like it it can always get worse but it can always get better there's always a chance but no matter how bad it gets just just keep going what about you nomad um yeah, it's it's different again. Like it's not um, the Canadian forces is very small. Like um, again, Canada's like you know second largest landmass country in the world, and we're like a tenth of the size of Britain, like population wise, <laughs> like in total. Like you know what I mean. And then our military's like I don't know. I looked it up the other day, and it's like a quarter of the United States Marine Corps. Oh my god! So you're talking like even less people in in Canada. We're in the military. And then even less people like did my job in the military and even less people got out of my job and switched to law enforcement and even less people left all that and still do outdoor stuff. So like, I'm like a weird, like 1% of people, but I, I don't know. I just, um, I was very obsessed with this outdoor and space prior mm-hmm. to the military. But again, um, it wasn't normalized in my upbringing. Like I grew up in suburbia. I had never camped Richard until basic training. Like that's super okay. funny now, but I had never <laughs> camped outside because my parents are like urbanites. I'd never camped until the army. And then now post uniform, post everything for me, I just constantly reflect on the military was like a very, very loose baseline, but they never did anything well. If that makes sense. Mm. It's like they just did enough to not have people die. And then if yep. you brought forth any outside experience to make that place better, you were just shit on, you were shunned or, um, for me, I did a lot of hiking when I was in the military, but outside of work, I'd get a leave pass and I'd go to Jasper for the weekend. Mm-hmm. I'd go and my supervisor would look at me and be like, why are you rucking for three days in the mountains? We do that for work, right? <laughs> it just, it wasn't like normalized to want to like do it more on your own and like mastering the craft essentially, right? On like being as comfortable as you can be practicing these skills. And I think the military is a downfall for a lot of people in this space because, like six, seven, and I talk about this all the time. When you're doing outdoor stuff, not in the military, you don't have an entire mm-hmm. rear echelon to support you. 
It's all mm. on your own now. And a lot of people in the military can fake it because they're one dude in a platoon or they're one dude in a company or if they're mechanized, you know, their their vehicles there or whatever the case may be. But to actually do normalized outdoor things and again, like just being, you know, um, a family man now with like kids and like, you know, a woman, I'm like, I'm in charge of all of it now. Whereas in the military, yeah, I was in, I was a team leader and I was well, a section commander. I was in charge of, you know, 10 dudes, but I was just one cog in the machine in the platoon. I was just another guy. There was other people helping me. So yeah, it, it's just very different, um, translating it back and forth, but it's always something that's going to be with me. Like I spent from 17 to 29 in uniform. So it's all I knew. I was like a young man. And again, I never camped outside before I wore green, but it's just, um, yeah, they just do a lot of things very poorly to a mediocre standard here in Canada. (laughs) And like, again, it's not even, it's not even a pessimistic thing, Richard, because like, like I said, I've spoken to a lot of other forces and they look at, they'd look at us and be like, you guys are whack. Like you don't know anything. (laughs) And the, and the British guys love to use the term. I, we're going to bleep me out, but the British always called us at everything. At everything, everything they saw, yeah. and I even had a Royal Marine Commando dude um, in Afghanistan look at me and say, "I don't know how my country let you guys police yourselves." <laughs> yeah, because he was convinced that we should have been left under like the Commonwealth and we should have never been allowed to do anything on our own. And I'm like, "Well, you're not wrong. Like, I I totally believe that." And again, from the outdoor perspective. Um, if most people in Canada aren't getting after it in the bush, like you assumed, I'm like, well, he's not wrong because people in your position in Wales would love to use my backyard as a training mm-hmm. area, right? It's just yeah. not appreciated here. That's a lot of things that we actually did. Uh, so I, I grew up on a, a farm in rural Indiana, actually. Um, and a lot of us would just grab our tents and go out back, way out into the field and just camp. But we still had that essentially your rear echelon of, hey, we need to go piss or something. Well, let's just go back up to the house. We need food. Go back up to the house, the refrigerator. I mean, none of us really practiced any of that stuff. Even when I got into the military, I noticed that I could count on one hand how many guys went out and actually did camping on top of all the other training that we did in the field. Mm -hmm. We never learned any field craft stuff. We never learned how to start fires. We never learned how to survive. Like, that was not on any of our radars. And even in our off time, Nobody did it because we spent so much time mm-hmm. out in the field just being miserable that nobody wanted to do that stuff. So what did I do? I didn't do it. I was with the range shot. Yeah. And then I was doing that stuff and people thought I was weird. Right. Mm-hmm. Like on the weekend, yeah. I would do that, Richard. And people were like, what's wrong with this dude? Mm-hmm. Like we're in the field like 200 days a year. Why is this guy going <laughs> on his own with his with his brucksack? Let's, <laughs> like, let's start yeah. counting the reasons. You see the hiding bodies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's just it's just like very different. But like. Um, all the British guys that I have met like in uniform or out or even now in this, um, you know, either through the podcast or like my social media account, it's like, it's normalized for them. Like what you said, the British guys will find a way to find land and get outside and do whatever it is they have to do. And when you're cold, wet and miserable for 300 days of the year, they're, these guys are still happy to be out there versus the North American side. It's, it's not normalized or. Like Six and I said, it's people are so dependent on the gear or the military side. They're so dependent on, well, I'll get in that vehicle when I'm cold. And again, like I know Six and Seven, they were in like a mechanized infantry unit. So they weren't like they didn't walk everywhere. They were driven. But I was in a light infantry unit. And I lived out of a rucksack for like weeks at a time with, yeah, I had food and water that showed up. But just like Six said, I never was formally shown until later in my military career. But most infantry guys here aren't shown how to make a fire. 
They're not showing how to make a shelter. It's just not a thing we're, we're taught. Yeah, we didn't need it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, same here. I mean, I've done training for different units in the, the UK Armed Forces, um, but we were doing something for a an infantry unit um, without getting more into that. And then we were talking about firelighting and different things, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to bring some really high-speed stuff here to show you this, this, and this. And it's like, okay, we're doing cotton wool and Vaseline then, apparently, because... yeah. That's let's start with the stuff that works and reliable and 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 although there was one moment where (laughs) I was (laughs) he's got it right there. There's one moment where I was. uh, This is the early days of vape pens. Oh yeah, as well. Mm -hmm. And they were and they were quite the long elaborate yeah the big ones yeah with the big lithium batteries that just (laughs) go on fire if you look at them wrong. (laughs) And and I was getting the guy like just brought one guy. I was like, okay, turn out your pockets, turn out your webbing. What have you got? I'm going through everything in there that could be used to light a fire beyond ammunition and just and stuff like that. But mm. just that and that and that. Yeah, that first field dressing. Yeah, that. If you can get a spark to that, that will burn, but only if you do this to it. And we got to his vape pen. <laughs> and it was, okay, well, that oil is flammable. There's a battery in there you can short circuit. This You can get a spark from that. You can get that to burn. And he was saying, no, no, you can't. And I was like, no, no, honestly, you can. I, you know, I can... I'll, I I can find a video on you know people doing this, but you you can do this. No, no, you can't. Why? Well, this is a survival situation. Yeah. If you want the rest of these, you have to bleep this. Fuckers are, to yeah. survive this situation. I need. I that need that vape pen. pen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like like this guy was gonna die before he gave it to you. God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it was. Yeah, he was. He was suspicious when I started handling it because I think he was. He was like sliding his right foot back, you know, just to yeah <laughs> <laughs> go to the ground to take this yeah. back. Um, but so with that thing with the the perception of military skills and then maybe the reality of military skills, I think it's unit what? dependent though, like for sure, mm-hmm. and like you know, it depends oh, yeah. on your job and depends on your unit and like um, depends on where that baseline is or or honestly, it depends on who your leadership is too, because I've had guys, whenever I was like a private, they were like section commanders or section two ICs. And these guys were super into field craft. And they're like, Hey, I'm going to show you how to make a fire. Not because we're going to have a camping trip, but if we're on an exercise and the weather gets bad and we die, mm. I'm going to save some of you. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, one of the scenarios we used to use for the training we delivered, it was called environmental survival training. And it was one of the scenarios was helicopter has crashed during an exercise in Canada you are these guys this is the equipment you have mm-hmm. you have 48 hours to survive in and it's winter and there's a storm coming <laughs> you know, it, was, it was those kind of things yeah. it was it was no one can get to you for this time nobody knew where you were it's gonna take a while for sar to find you did they How just have their it? bergen or just their webbing or like their belt kit what did they have uh, i think we made it hard for them i think we made it, it was like for some reason your bergens were left out and it like ble- it this. like fell out of the yeah. chopper as it went down yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah you know it was, it was it was the worst scenario but yeah. that was it was based around that, not the okay. You're on the run from the Stasi. Yeah. And these guys are chasing you, and these guys are yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a, well, lie in a ditch or not? You know, there's only so many options you have um, for that kind of seer. Um, what I was what I was going to ask was that with this perception of oh yeah, the military, the yeah, military being the baseline, military, military yeah, veteran. Yeah. What are your opinions then when people say I'm an outdoor survival expert? I'm a military outdoor survival expert. I'm a veteran developing this company and that that they're leaning a lot on On their resume they're leaning a lot on their past laurels yeah um 
just it depends I've on what. I've got an answer. Yeah, yeah, like it depends it on depends on what, what. I'm yeah. skeptical mm-hmm. at first because you could have been the seer instructor, and again, I'll use. I'll use the U.S. Um, forces, like, because again, I'm not in the U.S. forces or never was, but I do know the Air Force and the U.S. military has like that SEER instructor, yes. like pipeline. Mm-hmm. So that's all they do. That's all these guys do is teach, survive, escape, resist, evade to pilots, to special forces units, to whatever. So if someone like that said that, I'm like, well, he's probably correct. He probably knows more than most people coming at this. But if you're you were a truck driver in the British Army, let's say, for three years or four years, and but your buddies are like, he was in the army. I'm like, he's not a subject matter expert in anything. He, yeah, he wore, you know, multi-train pattern or uh, DPM or whatever, but he's not anything close to being proficient, let alone a master of it. So, I think it's, it's you got to take it with a grain of salt. But it's, um, I, I question right away. Not that I'm like doubtful. Mm-hmm. I just want to know more than that mm-hmm. generic answer. So there was a period um, in the early 2000s where survival TV shows were starting to become mm-hmm. really popular, and they were cropping up everywhere. Yeah, alongside the Bear Grylls stuff. Bear which, Grylls, Les Stroud. Um, what was that? Yeah. Man vs. Man vs. Wild. What was that other guy? No, Man yeah. vs. Wild was Bear Grylls. But what's the, what's the guy where he's there? He's on a horse and he's tracking people. Do you guys remember that I one? I don't know that. Uh, one. First Man Out is that? Or? I'm trying to remember his. He had a bunch in Canada, but through the United States, and he was oh man, tra- man tracker. I think he was on a horse and he tracked two oh. people, and you could just like try and get away from this dude. Yeah, there were a load of these things that so because everyone was jumping on the genre. Mm-hmm. They went through. There was a period there where a lot of TV consultants were they're coming out of the military and they were using okay, yes, he's a TV survival outdoor consultant. He's from the military. Yeah, and it, and that speaking to people who were working around at that time that fell over quite quickly because they realized that what that person was quite good at was replicating what they had done for 10 to 15 years in the british army mm-hmm. or the u.s army or whatever it was which isn't necessarily applicable to this situation in front mm-hmm. of them yeah because it's relying on that long supply chain of equipment and personnel and mm-hmm. and another support services that are coming to get you coming to bring you stuff whatever or this you're trained around a certain set of equipment and then they started shifting towards civilian instructors more and civilian consultants Mm -hmm. so i've got friends who now work full-time or almost full-time doing this as behind the scenes on tv for shows like alone maybe alone Mm -hmm. um depending on what he's working on that that year but they're from civilian backgrounds they're from expedition backgrounds they're from these were the guys who just spent five years backpacking around the world living out of living out of a rucksack and improvising because they had more of that experience than somebody who had been wearing multicam yeah for 10 for a decade 100 percent. but i think it's with the social media aspect it's just very glorified and we put these people on a pedestal and then don't realize that not all skills from the military are applicable to this space. And, um, yeah, people just don't want to hear it or people think it's to the highest standard. And, um, yeah, six, seven, and I have talked about this so many times that it's just, it's, it's done to a very low standard again, to just not die. Like Hmm. that's it. It Uh doesn't mean you're a subject matter expert, but again, if you are that seer instructor and this is all you did for 15 years and that's, Mm -hmm. that was your job, like teaching survival skills to pilots. I'm like, okay, he probably knows a thing or two, but, um, yeah, it's just interesting because I'm, I'm glad you brought up Alone as well because um, most of that show or a lot of this, a lot of the seasons are literally filmed in my area. 
in Canada. Like they're filmed right near me. <laughs> and every time there's a every time that show has a veteran on it, I joke and say like, "Oh, they're going to quit." I'm like, "It's always someone who's just a normal dude who was never in the military that crushes it." And yeah. these these military guys are usually the first to qu- or not the first, but they quit very early on to the series. And I think people get surprised. I'm like, "Well, no, that dude probably was a cook. Like we we don't know. He just says he's in the army. Like I don't know what he did." Yeah. It doesn't yeah, mean maybe some- anything. Or somebody who's in the military who did that stuff a lot looked at that and went, "No, that's stupid. I'm not doing that." Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go and work a job and have a family and a house and become. Honestly, that's been my yeah. my experience too. Just like I I got out and immediately some of my friends were like, "Hey, you want to go run a, like a half marathon with me?" I'm like, "No. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> I did five k's every Monday morning for like years. Why would I want to go run a freaking marathon?" Or let's go backpacking out here. I'm just like, dude, my knees are shot. I don't want to go do this right now. Like, no. Yeah. I'm the weirdo. I, d- I did that on my days off, and I still yeah want to do all that Respect. stuff. Respect, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just... Your knee- your knees will give up one day. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow. I'm not, I, I'm, yeah, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not far behind you in... Uh, in age richard and yeah a lot of people ask especially like how much jumping i've done or i've done they're like mm. man you're pretty lucky to still be like quasi fit and like you're not totally destroyed yet but oh yeah I'm, I'm i'm grateful for my continued fitness i'm not the smallest of guys i'm like six foot two and what's what is it in in american uh about pounds 270 pounds 275 pounds the conversion no worry um oh, yeah so it's I'm I'm a heavy boy. But yeah, I, at six two. I've been yeah, that... you could smash people though. <laughs> eh, I played rugby. Uh, yeah, even yeah. when, even when, I, yeah, even when I had a six pack, I was like two fifty. Oh yeah, that's I'm I'm six one. You're one hundred percent Spartan. Yeah, like that's 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 strong. That's big. <laughs> but I'm conscious of knees and things like that, and I I do make sure I train for my size as mm-hmm. it were i don't yeah. take that for granted so that i can still carry a pack and still carry heavy stuff and go over i, mean, I spent all day today carrying a shotgun around a rocky farm going up and down uphill and down dale and i try and make sure i maintain that fitness and maintain those things because i know so many people my age or slightly older who they're on their second knee surgery they've had back surgery they've had this and that and it's like this is why I stopped playing rugby because I was getting out of the car for training at the weekend and seeing guys in their early thirties getting out or getting back into the car with the with the ice pack on their knee, mm-hmm. the putting the brace on and thinking, oh, there's not there's not a longevity in this. There's not a lot in this contact sport <laughs> thing. Um, but yeah, that fitness thing as you get older, it's yeah, it's something to it's something that really plays on my mind and it's it's uh, part of that overall planning of what are you going to do with your life what's your mission what's your what are you driving towards part of that is to be able to do stuff for as long as possible and mm-hmm. i think going back to that like the military thing i think the military has been a very good place for people to get broken for a long long time because of the equipment the training the, mm-hmm. the operations the stuff you have to do yeah or like if it's not physical it's mental right just like what six said they yeah. don't like you don't want to be outside anymore or you you know have ptsd and you you can't even go outside anymore or whatever the case may be so trying to find that balance is is i definitely i definitely think like the healthy route but it's again we're just trying to like normalize this culture so that if you were in uniform if you're not in uniform we're just trying to bring the the bigger picture in the aspect that you can still enjoy these things and 
be mm. prepared and and maybe not even go outside all the time to train and like make a shelter right just go outside and go for a walk yeah. you know what i mean or like do something recreational that's not so yeah. i'm gonna train today like well you mm. could do other things and like you said the longevity of it you're going to be doing this when you're 55 if you approach yeah. it long term the the ability to walk over rough ground at night with a head torch that's something you have to learn yes that's absolutely. something you have to learn and that's something you have to develop mm-hmm. and that's not the sort of thing people think of in terms of preparedness but it's like okay you have to leave your house now and walk 10 miles to the west whatever or to the east if you live on the west coast but <laughs> that is that is the simple thing that you have to do to get out of this dangerous situation wildfire whatever it is can you do that with your family in the middle of the night do you have the skills to do that because you can practice that every weekend on a hike yep as a really soft skill no matter what preparedness kit chess rig side up what you know these are the things that seem to be everywhere for the north american social media stuff that's just gear that stuff that's that those are just accessories the real stuff is am i fit enough to do this can i do this can i pull this out of the pull this out of the toolkit right now and use it as a skill and you can practice those things like you're saying going out with your family going in as a really soft skill all of the time and i think about this like just when I'm walking the dogs, I choose routes that mm-hmm. we're going for. A, mm-hmm. okay, take the dog on a two-mile walk in the evening. I choose a nice, simple, easy route. That for some days, for some days, yeah, we're gonna go straight up that hill through the <laughs> undergrowth, through everything else. Yeah, because I will hate it, but I'll be glad mm-hmm. I did it. And when I have to do that when I'm hunting, and I'm you know retrieving an animal, or just where well, we were, we were shooting pheasants today, um, and hiking uphill with shotguns and having to do the having to do firearm safety having to move safely make sure you're moving in the line with the guy to the left and the right of me so we were all staying in line together and reading the terrain ahead of me looking for the birds looking for all these things thinking i'm doing about 30 different things in parallel here none of them is super extreme mega outdoor skill yeah that would feature in a tv show but they're all skills that i have developed over quite a long period of time and I think that's the thing that people miss. And like you said, it's the you don't have to do go really hardcore into straight into the subarctic, sub-zero Arctic shelter, leaf litter, living out of living out of a, a Ziploc bag and, <laughs> um, and and one nitrile glove. You don't. That's one end of the spectrum. Sort out being able to walk uphill with a rucksack first. Yeah. <laughs> if you can do that, then work on that, and then build from there. I, I like you brought up the natural disaster thing because let's be real, that's that's the most common emergency that happens to most yep. people, regardless of where they live. Yep. Natural disasters, and in British Columbia, Canada, every year there's this massive thing that it comes from California. These forest fires it happens every year, and the province hasn't figured it out yet. And you'll be driving or evacuated from your region, and I'm driving on the highway, and I'm passing by thousands of cars, and people are walking around with, like, luggage, like, airport luggage and shit with their kids because they don't, like, have anything or, okay, the road's blocked. Where do you go? And he's going for repeated tests of whether conifers are flammable. Yeah, (laughs) right? Every year, these people haven't figured it out that this is a thing, and maybe if I live in the region where there's a forest fire, I should, you know know that i have a rucksack and you know water or w- like whatever the case may be it's just like you it said it's flames of hell come from california yeah it all comes from california and all the way up the <laughs> coast and then british columbia is on fire for the whole summer and there's like a there's like a f- there's like a federal fire ban they're like you can't have a fire I'm like oh okay cool 
But well, um, thanks, California. Yeah, <laughs> but like, th- there's a lot of people though that I honestly don't think that if we woke them up today and said, you know, here's a 35 pound rucksack and everything in there is like what you need for two days to not die. Just literally, mm-hmm. you're gonna walk for 12 hours, and then when you yeah. stop, you're gonna set up a camp. It's not gonna be tactical. It's gonna be yeah, you're just gonna make a shelter and not die. That's it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't think a lot of people can do that, and I, I think I think they don't want to do that because it's. It's the realization that they can't, whereas it's easy to just buy a piece of gear. It's easy to, you know, oh, it's easy for me to like, you know, hit that like button on Instagram and be like, oh, I'm really liking that post that. uh, Yeah, I'm really liking that (laughs) post that like Richard Perdoe did, but I'm not going to go outside like that's too hard. So I'll just like (laughs) it from afar. (laughs) We uh, I can share a very short story for this that we had a we had somebody that came to us as a client as a result of our survival podcast. Okay. Because they had bought, they got freaked out by Ukraine at the very beginning of last year. Yeah. And they started, re- you know, Putin's going to nuke us and that kind of thing. <laughs> so they went out and bought. Total fear-based um, purchase, but that's okay for you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They bought, they bought a pair of bug out bags. Oh, a from pair. Amazon. Oh, so and like pre-staged the, ones or pre-loaded or whatever? Or just pre-loaded. And yeah. they added a load of other stuff to it based on okay. some stuff they read on the internet. I mean, I'm not, crapping on these people because they're very good people and they they their intention was well it was their yeah. intention was well yeah. and that we and i covered this in, in one of our episodes um but we they came to us and said i think we may have overdone this a little bit <laughs> can you give us you know, some sort of training experience that maybe shows us how far we've got it wrong it's yeah. like, oh yes yes i can do <laughs> so we gave them a sort of a 24 hour bug out type experience um, all the instructions I gave them were get to this one small farm farming town in the middle of nowhere in Wales and meet and be at this cl- this clock tower in the middle of the town at midday with your bags that was it and that was the only instruction I gave them mm-hmm. what we set up was a whole zigzag of land nav routes back and forth across this valley that started with somebody just walking past them at one second past midday and just dropped an envelope onto their lap and walked off which was then the instructions. Like their instructions you have to get yeah. you have to get to this place within this time limit mm-hmm. and then you got there and then there was like another cache and they got to get and they zigzag so they did about 10 miles back and forth across the valley in the middle of summer it was heat up and down <laughs> through mud Jesus. That's and we awesome. were watching them from vehicles with That's a drone awesome. <laughs> with optics watching them suffer <laughs> and then taking photos of them that we were sending to them Mm-hmm. on by a text message throughout the whole thing then they got into the woods and then it was okay you are in this woodland you can't talk to anyone you can't know communication with the outside world sort out your needs of life from your bags and we just broke their system literally broke everything in there and then we sat down at the end of it and went right i for this have done the same thing you did with more planning and i just lived out of a 40 liter rucksack with camping gear in it mm-hmm <laughs> and I was more comfortable than yeah, you. Than you just like crush these people's like initial plan. Yeah. So just their soul. And it was this. How big was the bag need... that these people had? Do you remember? Was it huge? Oh, it was like, like 100 liters? a hundred liters? No, it wasn't. It was big, but it was stupid shape. It was like the you know those rush the five eleven rush seventy two oh, yeah. mole bag yeah. mm-hmm. that just sticks out for a mile yeah. from from your from back. your back yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and so you're really off balance and they're uncomfortable and they pull on your chest it was like one of those kind of size bags with stuff strapped to it they look like two hobbits oh that's they look like awesome they have to throw, throw a ring at a volcano 
um, that's so awesome. They, but they went through it. They went through a great learning experience, and then they, they've they've done other stuff since. So they actually update me with, yeah, we've done this, we've sold this, we've we got rid this. of all that stuff. We bought these things instead on your recommendation. Um, so they're really good people. Um, but that is, we had a similar experience to what you were talking about. That okay, you don't know what's coming. You don't know how long this thing's going to last for. Just go. You don't know what you have to deal with. All of your careful plans aren't going to matter. What you need to be is resilient and flexible. Mm-hmm. And willing to just keep going. Yeah. And it's just, um, it's not, I don't think, normalized again within this culture, right? They want to consume a piece of gear to solve the problem. But until you've done that trial and uh, testing, like what you did with those clients, which is awesome, putting them through the ringer for you know a day, then they're going to kind of get a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know until you try it. So go out and fail. Exactly, yeah. Just make sure it's a repeatable failure, not something, not like, the, you know, how how bad is the rest of the day going to be? Is it the end of the day at this failure? Is it the end of your life? Try and avoid those and just yeah. make the small failure. <laughs> yeah. I guess, yeah, we could talk about that. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah, so in regards to kind of moving forward with this outdoor community and um, I don't even want to just call it preparedness. Yeah, just anything outdoors. Is there anything that you think, Richard, that like people should be kind of pushing towards in regards to training or like me- like methodology or just an overall improvement in this like space and culture? I'd say being skeptical about where the information is coming from is yes. is a big one um you know just because it's a, it's in a it's in a meme format doesn't mean it's true or just because somebody has found a military training manual from the 70s and, oh look at this stuff that we forgot about these guys used to do it's like well maybe there's a reason we stopped doing that because maybe there was that was just the military equivalent of an old wives tale mm-hmm. or medical medical uh, stuff has moved on beyond that um so be skeptical about that information because it's not necessarily coming from a point of malice or trying to be um, intentionally deceptive. It's just somebody doesn't know better. They're they're no further ahead in the book than you are, but they're just they're just looking at a different, a slightly different side of the page. But they don't have a a hidden skill set that you've missed. It's just actually they probably are, they don't know that what they're sharing isn't right either. Um, so look at that and then there's also there is the intentionally deceptive people are sharing information because it's sponsored or because it's in order to get more reviews or because it's it's there to get more views on their channel what they're doing is sharing what the algorithm wants not what is good outdoors training or training for whatever subject it is um and then normalize mistakes normalize failure and this doesn't mean like striving for failure in everything you do, but it means failing upwards, failing. Don't try and repeat the same mistake. Find a different mistake that's further along the track. Find a different mistake that's further up in that skill set. Because there's always another thing you don't know. Even if those things are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and it comes down to one millimeter that way, one millimeter that way, you could always be better at what you're doing. So learn from those mistakes and it make it okay in your environment for those mistakes to be talked about because I said at the beginning of the podcast that as an instructor all I have to sell is a sum total of my mistakes and what I've learned from them. There's a parallel to that which is 
some of what I have to sell is learning from the mistakes of others and them talking to me about their mistakes. If somebody says, oh yeah, I nearly died doing this. It's like, how did you nearly die? What would you have done differently? How did you screw this up? Mm -hmm. So I don't have to go through that failure. I can learn from your error. Um, and this is what I get from working with clients because they find new ways to screw things up that I would never have thought of. And I find like, you're, you've used that piece of equipment in a way that's so wrong, I wouldn't have even thought about it. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to become a story in the next class. Yeah. But it's okay to make those mistakes as long as you, you approach the aftermath of them in the right way and not just turn to somebody and go, oh, you're an idiot because you made a mistake. It's like, well, are you perfect if you never made a mistake? I'm really interested in sharing my mistakes with people and but all, more importantly what i've learned and what else just calm down a bit not everything is meant to be super mega exciting thrashing around this exciting all this adrenaline all the other time it's like yeah you don't want to be in a permanent fight or flight state no. quiet boring competence is what gets you through stuff and saves lives and saves and makes you safer and makes you a better person being the unpredictable person that's always jigging around and never quite and, and, never, and always doing the thing it's oh i've just done this thing i've just done this thing you'll never guess what i've just done it's like i wish i could because <laughs> because what you're about to tell me isn't going to be good for me or the tribe <laughs> you know, yeah those people didn't survive in a hunter-gatherer society the people yeah. that survived were or were allowed to survive that you know oh terry didn't come back from the hunting trip um those people who were allowed to survive and were there for the good of the, of the tribe were the people that could be relied upon. Yeah, exactly. I I said I was going to meet him at this rock under the next full moon. When the next full moon came over the horizon. He's not here. Something has happened to him, which means because he's always reliable. Instead, I was going to meet him at this rock. Well, he could have forgotten. He could be doing something else. He could be chasing the girl from the next village. It could be anyone, any number of things. You yeah. can't build a society on, on unpredictability. So being predictable, being competent and calm should be what we're striving for, not being the most exciting person in the room. Yeah, one 100%. And like in a day and age now where everything is about likes and shares and followers it's i think we've gone so far away from that where if people just kind of go back to their baseline on their values and their beliefs and be like hey i just need to do this because it's best for me and my family yeah you won't really yeah. you know stir off of that no well, that's me yeah i've got no other wisdom no nothing else of value nothing <laughs> else of value um <laughs> would you be able to just plug in your um because you have because oh you have two instagrams i know there's richard perdo and then there's uh original outdoors has one as well but so does your podcast does it not oh i've got even more than that it's even worse than you think drop them uh, so <laughs> drop them all drop them so, and then we will so put them I, all in the description as well <laughs> i'm at rich perdo but that's quite vanilla that's just me and some of my photography and some of the random stuff i get to do at work mm -hmm. um you might see my German Shepherd on there occasionally. Um, we're all fans you. of Shepherds on this podcast. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I've got a Shepherd <laughs> in the too, background. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's at Original Outdoor, which is the um, sort of the public side of the business, and which is gradually becoming more content creation than anything else. Okay. Um, we have a website which is outdoorprofessional.co.uk, which is if you were 
coming to see what we do with professional end users and that kind of training you can go and have a look at that but that's very boring and corporate um podcast wise modern outdoor survival is probably the one that's most appropriate to this conversation uh, that's on all of your podcatchers spotify apple wherever uh, we try to make sure it's, it's in as many places as possible um uh, and well, there's an instagram account for that at modern outdoor survival um but yeah it's not difficult to track me down if you just search my name there's only about three of us with that name in the world i think <laughs> so, that's awesome what's this new podcast that you you were talking about that's coming out uh it's called thank you for asking uh, it's called modern bushcraft modern bushcraft, um, modern and it's, bushcraft. Okay. yeah because i want to we will plug that talk. as well mm-hmm. thank you guys yeah, yeah. I pre- you know this is this is the this is the good side of social media because you get to have conversations with real people even mm-hmm. if it is via dms um mm-hmm. <laughs> because you, you can you can you can see a bit more about what they're like if they're regularly posting yeah um mo- modern bushcraft it should be out mid-february um and it is talking about some of the skills we've talked about in this episode but also some of that mindset of where being you're not just a passenger in the landscape you are part of it you are living part of it and you understand the things that you're seeing hearing smelling touching and you can make use of them or at least know how to avoid them making use of you that's awesome i'm gonna subscribe as soon as that is available absolutely that's awesome richard yeah yeah we really thank you guys yeah we really appreciate appreciate you coming on the show richard and taking the time especially with the the time zone difference between uh (laughs) three time zones and an ocean (laughs) we made it work (laughs) yeah well thank you for having me on guys and it was uh it was a pleasure being here, and it's um, it's always slightly weird being on someone else's podcast. <laughs> Hope it was a good experience, well, hof- though. Yeah, and hopefully, oh, a- hopefully we can do more stuff again in the future. So Absolutely. thanks, Richard. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. This has been Hard Times Strongman Podcast, creating a better class of man. Stay savage and stay in the fight. Yeah.